Beyond the Books is a podcast from the School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Ellen, your host, a PhD student in French and Francophone studies, and this interview with Professor Peter Diane is going to be the last one for a little while, as my internship in the Web and Communications team ends very soon. Thank you so much to Rachel Chung, David Farrier and Katie Hawthorne for being such wonderful guests and to all of you who've listened and said lovely things, thank you. Beyond the Books will be back with a new presenter, maybe even back in the studio later on in the autumn, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for more exciting chats about research in the not-too-distant future. This week I'm speaking to Professor Peter Diane, Professor of Word and Music Studies and Head of French and Francophone Studies at the University of Edinburgh. In this episode, we talk about a lot of things, including Peter's R. Gapper prize-winning book, The Music of Dada, A Lesson in Intermediality for Our Times, the works of Tristan Zara, and the new taught MSc in Intermediality, which starts in 2021 here at the University of Edinburgh. I hope you enjoy this episode, and for the last time, stay safe, all of you, and above all, be well. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and agreeing to chat with me today. Um... Your book, The Music of Dada, A Lesson in Intermediality for Our Times, has been awarded the Gapper Prize, so congratulations on that. Um, and I'd like to kick off uh, our kind of segue into your book and talking about your book by asking you if in a few words, a few short words, you could maybe tell me how you define intermediality. What is it for the layman who maybe doesn't really, hasn't heard of that term before? Well, in this context, um, it means the relationship between the arts in different media, specifically music, poetry, and more generally art that uses words, and the visual arts, but also more or less in the background, painting, and uh, a sort of cluster a constellation of visual arts that are not painting and are often much more um shall we say transient like um uh, things made out of wool or costumes and that kind of thing lurking behind all this is something that i don't address which is cinema but it's the relationship between the arts and how um when people look at one art let's say poetry they always tend to say if they like it, that it is actually music. Or if they look at music and they think this musician is a great musician, they will say this musician is a poet. And the same things happen to paintings and so on and so forth. And why? What is the actual relationship between them? How does that work? And in the case of Dada, how does that work in practice? Because there were always soirees in which all the arts were brought together. And how and why were they brought together? And what was the effect of bringing them together? What was the context in which you first became interested in researching Dada? How, what was your research journey that led you up into that point? So um, I started a bit further back in the 19th century, looking at how um, when people were working within one art, as I just said, they always seem to present it in terms of another art and how people reacted against 
Wagner towards the end of the 19th century, you'll wonder why I'm talking about Wagner, I hope it'll become clear, Um, because they thought that what Wagner thought he was doing was bringing all the arts together so that they supported each other and all did the same thing in the same space to create a single total work. Now, people looking at that period nowadays think that's what was going on then, but most of the great artists in France, especially at the time, reacted quite strongly against that. They wanted to keep the arts separate. They wanted to be able to say that a poem was music without actually bringing audible music in. And I discovered that what the Dadaists had done was a very extreme version of that, bringing the arts together and yet uh, in the same space, in the soiree, and yet keeping them very separate and giving them very separate things to do. And um, I was fascinated by how they did this, particularly because of the way that that what they did with the arts has become totally invisible over time. And it's a sort of extreme case of how nowadays people tend to think quite naturally the arts will work together. In fact, in very important ways, they repel each other, they keep each other separate, they will not work together. It's very important that they don't work together. And the Dadaists could see that and they kept that going and we've lost the ability to recognise it. So that's the reason so I was fascinated by the Dadaists. Kind of giving a context to, I think, those of us who know Dada, think we know Dada, um, understand a bit, that is that it was an anti-art movement or a way of kind of challenging those established... Um, means of what you know um modalities as you said or the kind of traditional function of art um i'm thinking of a of a quote by uh, richard hulsenbeck who described dada's music in his 1920 history of dada as something that was enamored of raw sound could consist in simultaneous chanting of nonsense syllables or shouts and he said that dada loved um the noises of the metal um in the opening lines of this book the music of dada you posit a counter-argument um, and you suggest that if we look closer at evidence that's available, we start to see a kind of a different image of Dada to the one of it being this kind of chaotic, um, dissonant, anti-music. So what picture did you find emerging through your research when you started to write this book? Before I answer that question... Mm. I'm going to answer a question that you haven't asked yet, <laughs> um, which is, why do people have the view of Dada as being a noisy, chaotic, anti-art movement, when in fact, from the beginning, it always defined itself as an art movement? There was always the art and the anti-art working together, but the only one we see now is the anti-art. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason for that is actually surprisingly simple. It's that what Dada wanted to refuse absolutely was any kind of rational, reasonable argument, any kind of critical argument that could tell you what art was. They saw um, the rational as applied to culture in general as basically the source of all the woes they saw around them, including the First World War. And They refused that so absolutely that when they were talking about art, they were careful not to make sense. They thought art was not about making sense. And if you asked them questions about art, they would talk rubbish. And that was a principled stand on their part. 
It didn't really mean that they were not making art, and they were perfectly capable of admitting that. It did mean they were not going to tell you how what they were doing was art. Mm. Now, after all that, I'm going to go back to the question you did ask. <laughs> um, as, I, as I show in my book, um, <laughs> the whole Dada enterprise actually starts with romantic music. And the very first um, encounters between the people who became the parents of Dada was inspired by hearing Tchaikovsky and Brahms and such like played on the piano. And in the first Dada events, there was not only popular music and folk music, all of it tonal, but always also from the beginning, 19th century romantic music usually played on the piano. And from quite near the beginning, people like Schoenberg. So it was music in what we would think of as the great musical tradition. Whereas when it came to painting and when it came to poetry, they were much more suspicious of the great tradition, especially in poetry. And the reason for that is that in poetry, there are words. Words tend to explain things. They do not trust explanations. Whereas in music, you can sort of, you can bypass that. You can ignore it. You can say nothing about music. And they said nothing. They just played it. In the soirees, the music was played. Nobody said anything about it. There were no words associated with it. And that's one of the reasons why it's become invisible to us today. Painting plays a kind of intermediate role. And it's these different relationships between the media feeding into the central concept of art, but each medium behaving differently, that is the interest of what I call intermediality. You said that with music, that the fact that it's silent, that it doesn't have words, means that it could sort of exist in the background and that it's not occupied as much of our critical focus because it's a sort of this separate medium that's maybe kind of faded away. Um, but I'm thinking kind of from a musical perspective, music has words and it has forms and it has differences in tones and they're not maybe linguistic words but they are definite signifiers or semantics or things that make us feel and think in a certain way and to what extent was that challenged was it challenged um and played with have you seen examples of of ways that maybe music does find words or different words or means of association. Um, you can't answer that without really separating Dada out into two phases. Because in the earlier phase, mainly in Zurich during the First World War, um, the traditional idea of music as something composed uh, according to principles that you can analyze to some extent, but to some extent also you know they'll always escape you, that was never challenged at all. Right. That um, There was a, a a lot of tonal music, a lot of very carefully composed music, some improvisation, but improvisation within very much the musical tradition where improvisation goes back centuries, you know. Yeah. Now, um, after the war, uh, Sarah moves to Paris and becomes involved with the people who later became the Surrealists. And at that point, um, well, André Breton gets involved. André Breton has the particularity of hating music. He, he was the ultimate tin-eared man. He could not appreciate any kind of music at all. Um, and he totally didn't get what music had been doing. So in the very first Dada manifestations in Paris, um, as far as I can tell, a lot of evidence is missing. Sarah brought along the earlier attitude to music and there was piano music by Satie and so on being played in the soiree. 
But later on, um, and similar things happened in Berlin, actually, partly um, uh, in, association with in association with Hülsenberg, whom you mentioned a while back. Um, rather than using music as this link to a great tradition about which we say nothing, music was also used as a way to show how um, we can go against any kind of reasonable composition. And it is actually quite difficult to say, because so much evidence is missing, um, what kind of music was performed at the later Paris events, but there is some, that there is some kind of evidence that there was random music composed. In other words, um, people like Georges Ribemont de Seigne would choose notes by spinning a wheel uh, and he would write out the notes in totally random order and he would then turn that into a piano part or even into an orchestral score and he would have that performed and the idea was it would not sound like music and people would get cross with you and and this would then make people think but what is music right so we have the carefully composed music and the apparently random music at different points in the history of Dada. Um, and the original Dadaists always wanted to pull it back towards the more traditional idea of music. The more random idea of music, uh, to the extent that it existed, um, it had quite an impact and people have always remembered it. Uh, there wasn't all that much of it, but when it was it certainly, uh, it seems to have succeeded in annoying the audience when it happened. The, but the first noise that annoyed an audience when it happened in a Paris Dada event, would you call it music? What happened was Tsara was reading out a text, perhaps it was a newspaper article, perhaps it was a poem, and um, two of the future surrealists began ringing little bells in the background and they rang them so much that you couldn't hear what he was saying. And this was obviously designed to annoy the audience, and it did. Now, would you call that music, this ringing of little bells? It wasn't music in the traditional sense. No. It wasn't labelled as music, like the random music that came later. But I think you can see there the first, um, the term that's often used is anti-music. So in the first few years of Dada, there is no anti-music. In the later period, there's music and anti-music, and they kind of face off against each other. I suppose... Maybe it might be helpful before I move on to my next question to think a little bit about either the relationship between either music or anti-music. So this example, you talk about the bells and the poetry working together. Um, how you found that they were either influenced by other mediums or that they in turn helped shaped the medium around them. Um, I suppose maybe a little bit more maybe an even longer answer about what you uncovered or what you found about that relationship, particularly with music and other medium in this movement. Let's go back to the earlier days of Dada, when it was much more an art movement than an anti-art movement. The anti-art thing really started um, at the end of the First World War. Uh, in those days, when there was a Dada soiree, the music would be separate from the poetry. And the poetry would be separate from the music. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is I think there was also dance without music, which at the time was quite revolutionary. Um, now, when they performed poetry, they tried to do it in a way that suggested 
a kind of hidden link between poetry and music. So that, for example, there's a very famous description um, by Hugo Ball, one of the original Dadaists, and the man who played the piano, the romantic piano music that brought all the Dadaists together. So he was very much a, um, a musician in the grand tradition and always had been. Um, and his wife was a singer, a folk singer, very good one. Um, he composed poems which we would now call sound poems, where the words do not make sense as individual words. He describes himself performing them and kind of wondering what he's really doing. And then it comes into his head that what he's actually doing is musical. And the pictures of him doing it always have him reading these things in front of a music stand. So that the poetry itself becomes music, if you like. If it doesn't make sense, if the words don't make sense, what is it? What have we got apart from sense? And the answer is music. But there is no technique of musical composition in there. There's no harmony. There's no melody that could be noted down. It was never, the, the intonation is never written down. The rhythm is implicit in the prosody of the piece. It's not, again, you know, notated rhythms as you traditionally get in music. So the way in which it is music is totally inaccessible to analysis. I know I keep coming back to this, but that is the essential point. It has to be totally inaccessible to analysis. The music remains inaccessible to analysis because nobody talks about it and because the Dadaists on stage know nothing about the arcanes of music. So that's absolutely fine. Right. Later on, let's say you get Sarah reading out a text, which may or may not be a poem, and the bells are being rung. The bells will actually stop you being able to listen to the text. And that is what annoyed the audience. Right? That's why one of the reviewers, for example, just walked out and several people walked out in the next interval. They didn't come back for the, for the last section. Um, now, you might ask, what's the point of that? Uh, because you've got that music stopping poetry from being poetry and poetry not interacting with anything else, just being kind of erased. And that, that did happen. That the most important thing at that point in the history of Dada, when the avant-garde was no longer such a novelty, if you like, was to prevent people from thinking they had found the art. That was more important even than making the art. They were doing both, mm. but the most important thing was to prevent you from thinking that you'd found it. You had to not know where it was. You had to look for it, wonder if you'd found it, because after that, they went on to play some more if you like perfectly normal piano music and to read out some more perfectly normal poetry. But there had to be a point at which you thought to yourself, there are things going on here which, which are just driving me bonkers and I don't know where the art is. Mm -hmm. And they wanted that feeling of you not knowing where it was to contaminate everything. They didn't want it to erase all the art, but they wanted the art to survive in spite of that. And what they did want to erase was any self-confidence you might have about where it is. Any self-confidence on the level of what you can explain and what you can do. And the advantage of bringing the arts together in a kind of clash like that, rather than in a, the cooperation that people expect in songs or in operas or whatever, is that it can produce this effect of, what's going on? Mm. I don't understand. Mm. And they wanted that. Mm. At that stage, they wanted that. It's interesting. It's just that it's made me, the, it's made me think about the impact that because I know the title of your book is lessons in intermediality for our times and I know you can 
or at least I don't think you envisage the current um, the COVID-19 pandemic when you were writing and the impact that that would have on established art and festivals. But it immediately made me kind of think of that, about how the whole way that we create art and um, fund art and showcase art and how we expect art to be and look and feel in all forms has, has changed and has shifted. And we don't know if that will be irreversible or not, but that we are still witnessing collaboration and kind of artistic construct in lockdown that the that might feel different or maybe kind of feel dissonant, but that just seems to embody that that definition or that idea that you're hinting at. I don't know. Um, that isn't really a question. It's just an observation. But I wondered what you thought about the about. I've seen over the last fifteen years, and I've been very heartened by it, and I've enjoyed it, and it's done me a lot of good in lots of ways, including professionally. Is Fewer and fewer students, particularly postgraduate, but also undergraduate, it's very striking, I didn't expect it to happen at undergraduate level, are satisfied at working within one artistic medium. I get almost no PhD students now doing a PhD just on literature, whereas I used to, now I don't. Why? because somehow they don't trust the idea of literature. They can see that if you just look at literature, well, of course, if you're only looking in it for ideas and for words and for what it tells you about society, that's one thing. But if you're trying to think of it as an art form, you can't quite work it out from within literature itself. You have to look outside. And so they'll relate literature to something else. And similarly, if they're working on music, they'll relate music to something else. Why? Not to say that these things work together happily, but to look at the cracks and the gaps and the, the frictions and the reasons why one refers to the other without actually being the other, without using the other. Why literature will always work with the idea of a, a music which is actually a silent music, and music will work with a notion of poetry which is not a poetry in words. And that has been spreading. It really has. You get more and more people working on that kind of thing, uh, which is reflected in what happens in conferences, in what there are conferences about, in publications, in what PhD students want to work on, in um, Marion Schmitz and Fabien Harry Bernard's wonderful new Intermediality MSc, which isn't running this year, but would have been had it not been for the COVID stuff. <laughs> and um, as I was saying to you a bit earlier, I've put together a new undergraduate option called Intermediality Between the Arts. Um, and I thought, is it actually going to get any takers? Because are people interested in art? Yes, it's got takers. And I'm really pleased and it's going to be fun. But I'll <laughs> enjoy it anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, those are kind of quite literal lessons that we're taking from, from Dad and Intermediality. What kind of things would students be able to look at if they were to pursue that module in their fourth year? Who's it open to for starters and what can they, what will they be looking at? What can they do? Who's it open to? Definitely any fourth year DELC student. Beyond that, I'm actually not sure. I haven't worked this one out yet. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, the texts um, will all be available in translation, although a lot of them were originally in French or German. Um, now, uh, there is a core question which we are going to apply to a number of different um, pieces of uh, literature, mm. music, and painting, which is the question of how are other media presented within that one? For example, how does a poetry deal with music? How does music evoke poetry? And do they work together or do they shut each other out? Do they push each other apart? 
th those are the basic questions. And within that, students would be free. So you said that the studies would maybe kind of not want us to try and transfer the essence, say, of music into a poem or vice versa. But as I think, as you rightly said, and especially now with a bigger transition to kind of digital production and everyone working between mm. platforms, medium, um, you know, particularly in the context of remote working um, in the last few months. Um, what does that, does that kind of give students complete freedom to to embrace those changes that we're seeing? Is it something that you sort of, is this module something you envisage involving in terms of its scope that students can help shape? Well, um, <laughs> its scope, as I have set it out, is very deliberately um, pre-Second World War. Right. Um, because things do change after the Second World mm -hmm. War. They change quite radically, especially after the 1960s. People's perspectives do change. Um, my line is the perspective of the critical establishment changes, the perspective of a lot of creative artists changes, the perspective of what you might call consumers of art changes an awful lot less. And the people who are working within the great intermediatist tradition um, before the Second World War, often remain the ones who uh, really define for us what art is. That applies in music, they're the people who fill concert halls. It applies in the visual arts, they're the people who have, uh, um, whose paintings you can put up and you're guaranteed millions of um, uh, people coming to see the exhibition. Uh, it applies slightly less in literature, but it still does apply in literature. And I think it's worth trying to understand why. Why the um, sort of definition of what art was that grew up in Europe in the 19th and the first half of the 20th centuries is still so powerful. And one of the reasons that I I'm really want us to think about that is, uh, as you know, one of the things that many people, including me, have been trying to do recently is think about the canon, what we, what we teach our students and how we choose what we teach our students and trying to make it uh, trying to decolonize it and make it less patriarchal and so on and so forth. And it's never easy. And why is it not easy? I think one of the things we have to do is try and understand this great tradition, how it's worked and why it's still so powerful. And within that, um, this is something we haven't talked about yet. Uh, you may remember ages and ages and ages ago, well, a good half hour ago, I think, um, <laughs> I mentioned the more transient forms of visual art, like things made out of wool or costumes. Mm. I also mentioned dance as somehow being something in the background that's not much talked about. In the Dadaist movement, and more generally around that time, these were the things that women did. And it was the women who played the piano, mostly. In fact, in most Dada soirees, maybe even all of them, um, if the composer was present, and the composer was a man, then he played the piano. Mm -hmm. If the composer was not present, it was always a woman who played the piano. It was always a woman who played the fiddle, and so on and so forth. Now, the role of women within that movement, the Dada movement, is something that's become kind of invisible in the same way as music became kind of invisible. And I think we need to think through how and why that happened. And that will help us to see, I'm not asking us, to, um, if you like, 
see through the great art tradition and think it's not worth working with anymore. But I want us to see that around the edges of it, there are other things which can also work as art. And I think we're not able to do that as well as we should because we haven't really understood how the great art tradition works through different media and how the, um, if you like, the, I, can't find, I can't find a right way to say this, I'll just say it as it comes, how the feminine element within it also relates to different media and relates in different ways that we need to think through. Is that part of that also, I suppose, would be a counter argument about what is considered, what was, what is considered feminine and masculine, how those ideas themselves are predicated on a kind of unequal binary and how mm -hmm. students coming at that now, when I think our understanding of gender and how gender intersects and how various, not simply gender, but how kind of that runs along other lines of oppression of, you know, of queer identities, of, of non-white identities, of non-gendered mm -hmm. identities, how much will that understanding of the fringes revolve a kind of involve sorry a breakdown and established methodology and practice on behalf of kind of universities and students and, and scholars in our fields well i think it does in one very important way um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna show some of my own prejudices here i've already said that andre breton had a tin ear he <laughs> couldn't appreciate music right he was also, uh, I hope there are no Breton experts listening, he was also quite a misogynist. And he was never really able to admit the role of women in art as the Dadaists before him had done. Mm. Now, yeah, I Nadia. think... Sorry? Look at Nadja. Sorry, I'm just thinking of... Well, quite, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, don't look at it. I mean, um, and... I think there's a connection there. Now, of course, the, the, the difficult line to tread is you look at the fact that within certain French artistic traditions, particularly in the early 20th century, and you can see a violent strain of misogyny in there, mm -hmm. and you look at others and there isn't that violent strain of misogyny. Like in the original Dada movement, there wasn't. There were a lot of women involved in it. Um, and you wonder why and as you wonder why, what you see is uh, not that within, let's say, the early Dada movement, women and men were, if you like, equal. They were not. They did different things. Women were admitted within the artistic sphere, but there was still a distinction between what women do and what men do. Yeah? Now, from one point of view, we ought to contest this. Right? Why should women be assigned certain values, whereas men are assigned other values? But at the same time, if you look at it in a historical perspective, I think you have to see what the women were doing within the Dada movement as the beginning of a kind of, well, not really the beginning, because the beginning was about 60 years earlier, really, but as a continuation of a kind of interaction between two perspectives of what art can do that has to slowly develop and that the wheels have to sort of I'm not saying they're going to grind against each other, but the two possibilities have to be there and you have to look at the cracks between them in the same way as you have to look at the cracks between music and literature. One question we want to ask, I try and ask everyone, and I suppose it's quite relevant thinking about kind of looking back um, also about the future of this as students. We ask everyone if they could give themselves a piece of advice, if they could approach their PhD self 
or their undergrad self maybe and give that person a piece of advice either on what was to come or what to do or what not to do is there a piece of advice you would give yourself (laughs) (laughs) no no there absolutely isn't because um really what I want to say is just go for it you can see what's really interesting for you don't pay any attention to what anybody else says. Follow what's really interesting for you. But, of course, I can also see that nowadays, people who do a PhD, they're probably thinking, I'm going to want an academic career. And if you want an academic career, um, you have to bear two things in mind. One is you have to do a PhD that is in a field where people want teaching. Right. And the other is you have to bear in mind that there are funding bodies and funding bodies like certain kinds of subjects, the impactful knowledge exchange and so on ones more than they like other ones. So does that mean uh, you need to be careful or does it mean you just follow your nose? Follow your nose. Go on, just do it. And yeah, is there anything by you that you'd like to plug any upcoming events, um, data related or not? My next book. Your next book. My next book. It's called <laughs> For the Love of Art. Mm-hmm. And um, it centers on a, um, a lecture I imagine myself giving to Charles Darwin. <laughs> to tell him to come on, Darwin. Stop pretending that you do not know that the whole of evolution is actually driven by the notion of beauty. Is it an imagined conversation? No, he doesn't get to answer. I just tell him. <laughs> me publish this thank you very very much for taking all of the time to talk with me i really appreciate it um you're welcome